0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. 40 years ago, Israeli psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky wrote a series of breathtakingly original papers that invented the field of behavioral economics. One of the greatest partnerships in the history of science, Kahneman and Tversky's extraordinary friendship incited a revolution in big data studies. Advanced evidence-based medicine led to a new approach to government regulation and made much of Michael Lewis's own work possible. In The Undoing Project, Lewis shows how their Nobel Prize-winning theory of the mind altered our perception of reality. Michael Lewis, the best-selling author of Liar's Poker, The Money Culture, The New New Thing, Moneyball, The Blind Side, Panic, House Game, The Big Short, and Boomerang, among other works, lives in Berkeley, California with his wife and three children. Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 401 of this podcast. Today is Memorial Day, Monday May 30th, 2022, and of course, the topic of today's episode is going to be The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. I just read for you the Goodreads summary and also the little blurb about the author, Michael Lewis, who I had actually never heard of before this, but I do recognize the names of several of his titles because, for instance, Moneyball. Uh, That was made into a movie, The Blind Side. I saw that one. The Big Short, I have heard of it, but I've never watched it either. It's interesting to read this book and to get some kind of an insight, I guess, into the kinds of things that are interesting to him as far as behavioral economics. These two Israeli scientists in particular, Israeli psychologists. But first, a quick word about Memorial Day, since today is Memorial Day. What is Memorial Day? Wikipedia has this to say. Originally known as Decoration Day, this is a federal holiday in the U.S. for mourning U.S. military personnel who have died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. It is observed on the last Monday of May. It was formerly observed on May 30th from 1868 to 1970. Many people visit cemeteries and memorials on Memorial Day to honor and mourn those who died while serving in the U.S. military. Many volunteers place an American flag on graves of military personnel in national cemeteries. Memorial Day is also considered the unofficial beginning of summer in the United States. Many cities and people have claimed to have first celebrated the event. By 1890, every northern state had adopted it as a holiday. The World Wars turned it into a generalized day of remembrance instead of just for the Civil War. In 1971, Congress standardized the holiday as Memorial Day and changed its observance to the last Monday in May. Two other days celebrate those who have served or are serving in the U.S. military. Armed Forces Day, which is earlier in May, an unofficial U.S. holiday for honoring those currently serving in the Armed Forces, and Veterans Day on November 11th, which honors those who have served in the United States Armed Forces previously. So it's a sobering day, as opposed to just a generalized appreciation for veterans, or a generalized appreciation for those who are currently serving. Memorial Day is specifically a day of remembrance for those who have died while serving in the Armed Forces usually those who have been killed in action, in battles, fighting our wars. It's a sobering day when you think about how many young men have gone off to fight and never come home. War is a young man's game. Or should I say it's an old man's game because it's typically old men who decide whether wars will be fought, but then it's young men who actually fight them and die in them. More often than not. So it's a sober day, and it's worth thinking about what is worth living for, what is worth dying for, what is critically important to us, important enough that we would be willing to fight and die for it, lay down our lives for it. Very often, when we talk about those who have died while serving in a combat zone, who've died in war, especially for our country, you'll hear the scriptures quoted. Greater love has no man than this that he would lay down his life for a friend. And of course, Jesus is who's being talked about there. But also for Christians who love one another, the watching world sees that we are his disciples or not based on if we love one another. And you don't get any more loving than if you love somebody to the point that you're willing to lay down your life for them, to protect them, to preserve them, to ensure their way of life is free. Freedom is a good thing, it is from God, and we should cherish it, and we should preserve it, and we should be glad for it, and we should give thanks for it. First and foremost to God above, and then secondarily to those who have laid down their lives, who are, who are willing to lay down their lives when the need arises in the defense of liberty. Liberty can sometimes be conflated very often, increasingly, as we've become more secular in recent decades. Liberty has become increasingly libertine, where we say that we will become slaves to sin to prove just how free we are. But that's foolishness. That leads to death. That is not, for my studying, what so many men have laid down their lives for. They didn't lay down their lives so that we could be slaves to sin. They laid down their lives so that we could, first and foremost, live lives according to conscience, before our Maker, before Almighty God. Believing that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. That's what so many men have laid down their lives for the conviction that these rights are from God and they were given for a purpose and because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos and because he is unchanging, he changes not. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. His reason and purpose for giving us these rights, this liberty must also be fixed and immutable and unchangeable and unchanging. So we do well to think about that and think not just about freedom to do what we want, but freedom to serve God, freedom to love one another well. That is worth living for. That is worth dying for. But back to the topic at hand, back to the main subject, which is the book review of The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. I think this is an important work. And it can be a difficult one to contend with because actually this does have to do with being free, being unfettered. A man who is enslaved in his mind doesn't need to be enslaved in his body, but he will be. First and foremost, if you enslave a man in his thinking, in the life of the mind, in his heart, in his soul. That's all you need to enslave him physically as well. So the question of how the brain works, how the mind works, that's one we need to contend with. We need to understand rightly how our minds work towards the end of being self-controlled. If God has called us to self-control, then we should be very mindful that we are maintaining self-control. We're not becoming slaves to sin. We're not allowing ourselves to be deceived, misled, led astray, taken captive by vain human philosophy. We should not allow ourselves or one another to be hijacked or to be derailed or to be made unproductive or unfruitful. We should not. So in keeping with that belief, that conviction of mine, I read books like this one, The Undoing Project, because I want to understand how my mind works and how the minds of my wife and children work and how the minds of my friends and family beyond that work and how the minds of my extended family and the city to which Yahweh my God has brought me, and my exile, work. I want to understand how the human mind works because I'm called to love my neighbor as I love myself. For that matter, I'm commanded to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mind. How do I love the Lord, my God, with all my mind if I neglect understanding and being intentional about how my mind works? So a question for you from the book, from the research that was conducted by Kahneman and Tversky, what is 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 times 6 times 7 times 8 times 9? You have 30 seconds. Got it? If you just broke out in a cold sweat, You're not alone. (laughs) It's kind of a uh, stressful question to ask. But really, truly, the point of the question is not to see how smart people are and how many people are good at math and how many people can guess the right answer or arrive at the right answer in 30 seconds. The point of the question actually is to see what happens when you reverse the order of those numbers being multiplied. So, for instance, What is 9 times 8 times 7 times 6 times 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1? You have 30 seconds. Nobody gets it right. But the interesting thing is not that everybody's wrong. The interesting thing is that consistently the random numbers that people throw out are far higher if you ask this question in reverse order, starting with 9 and counting down to 1 compared with if you start at one and count up to nine. This is because that first number being higher plays tricks with your mind. It's all the same numbers, but if we lead with a smaller number, then you're more likely to think that the final product will be a smaller number. We lead with a big number, you're more likely to think that the product is going to be a much bigger number. So that's an example, right? That's... It's an example of the kind of mind game we can find ourselves playing. And essentially, it's irrational. The research done by Kahneman and Tversky demonstrates that not only are some human beings irrational, most human beings irrational, everybody. We're all irrational and also consistently and predictably so and extremely susceptible to subtle influences, namely through the way that questions and assertions are framed and introduced. We are so prone to being influenced in very subtle ways, being conditioned, being primed, being set up, if you will. I would say when it comes to the implications of others of their findings, some of their experiments and questions and researches and whatnot. I mean, the implications are as broad as all of human experience and activity. We're talking interpersonal relationships, education, politics, religion, economics, the works, everything, everything that your mind affects or which is a product of your mind in terms of your attitudes Your feelings, your decisions, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do, how and when and why, all of it bears closer examination along the lines of this field of behavioral economics, if you want to be intentional. If you don't want to be intentional, if you just want to take the blue pill and go with the flow and just whatever it's going to be, it's going to be, then carry on. If you want to be self-controlled, if you want to be intentional, you do well to pay attention and to listen up. Anywhere, anywhere we find ourselves communicating and being communicated to, we will also encounter by chance or accident or intention the rhetorical equivalent of optical illusions. So an optical illusion is, for instance, you take two lines that are the exact same length, put them next to each other. And let's say for one of them, and you could just even draw this out, you could take a ruler, measure it out, draw two lines parallel to one another. One of them, you draw two diagonal lines facing in on either side of the line, and the other one, two diagonal lines facing out on either side of the line. And your brain will tell you one of those lines is longer than the other. And it doesn't matter how often you measure both of them with the same ruler. You still can't shake the perception, the feeling that one of them is longer than the other. This is how spin works when we're talking politics, and current events, and the 24-hour news cycle. This is how political campaigns are run and organized. This is how products and services are advertised to us and why we buy them and why we vote the way we do and why we build the relationships that we do, with whom we do, in the way that we do, when we do. It's important to be aware of how this works so that if by some measure you can guard yourself against accidents due to this, due to this uh, susceptibility we have, to get off on the wrong foot accidentally or to be susceptible to the schemes of others. Somebody wants to take advantage of us and they just camouflage their statement, their proposal, their assertion to where you don't see any of the negative elements or you think that they're very, very small and very unlikely and they give a lot of detail on the possibility of the good things that you want to have come out of this. And so when you do the cost-benefit, you've been manipulated, you've been deceived because they gave you lots of detail, lots of speculation, a very plausible scenario on the outcome that they wanted, and they poo-pooed the outcome that they did not want you to be thinking about and making a decision based off of. They withheld information or else framed it in a way, if they're very artful, which would cause you to skew your expectation of risk and reward going into this opportunity or threat. Whether you recognize it as an opportunity or a threat will depend heavily on whether you assign greater weight, greater likelihood to a given scenario you've been told about just because you were given more detail in the one and little to no detail in the other. This is how salesmen are either very, very successful or not so. This is also how corporate types and politicians either have very long careers and get wealthy or flash in the pan, whether they play this game in our day. So some other books besides this one, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, some other books that come to mind. As I read this, as I was thinking about it, as I was considering it, a couple, uh, three actually, namely. One, Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, Edward Bernays' Propaganda, and Saul Owensky's Rules for Radicals. And I don't mention those three because I think that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky were trying to advocate for being manipulative, dishonest, deceitful, uh, not at all. Not at least from what I take, right? So I mean, here, here too. Like any details to that effect may have been left on the threshing room floor by Michael Lewis because he wanted to present these guys in a positive light. I don't know, not sure. But at least to my knowledge, this is just as they see it. How people work, how people operate, and if they're right, if they're right that we very often, more often than not, make irrational decisions based on irrelevant factors, and then confirmation bias causes us to reinforce those decisions and insist and be sure that we're sure that we're sure that the logical fallacies are firm foundations, if they're right about that, we should be very concerned to figure out how can we counteract it in ourselves? How can we encourage those that we love to not be susceptible to Manipulators like Machiavelli and Bernays, and Alinsky. So, just a quick overview in case you're not familiar with those three. The big idea Machiavelli puts forward in *The Prince* is that the prince, which is just a stand-in for any kind of a ruler, any kind of a king, duke, emperor, any any kind of potentate, the prince should pretend at virtue publicly, and this is because the practical benefit of his subjects, especially, but also his rivals, giving him the benefit of the doubt and not expecting certain behaviors from him because he's he's virtuous. Oh, he would never do that. He would never do that. No, no, no. All the while secretly maintaining a free hand, adhering to ruthless ends justify the means principles behind the scenes. The prince pretending publicly gets all the benefits of virtue without any of the downsides, without any of the restrictions. So Machiavelli says straight up, the prince should pretend at being virtuous, but meanwhile privately do whatever is necessary to eliminate rivals, do whatever is necessary to get power and to expand your power and to hold on to power. That's Machiavelli's big idea. Bernays, Edward Bernays, double nephew of Sigmund Freud, actually created the fame and notoriety of Sigmund Freud by applying his ideas about psychoanalysis to mass psychology. Edward Bernays writes propaganda and says that, essentially, propaganda is just an inescapable part of leadership and marketing. You just can't get away from it. doesn't matter if we're talking products, services, political candidates, They all have to be propagandized in some sense. And what is propaganda? It is the art of the soft sell, implying and suggesting more than you explicitly state or promise. You capitalize on the power of positive and negative associations as a way to manipulate individuals and groups to do what you want them to do and to not do what you don't want them to do. In other words, you withhold the information, you conceal the information that you don't want them to have, which might cause them to not do what you want them to do, and you exaggerate the information that you want them to make the decision based on, the decision that you want them to make. So essentially, you're just controlling people, you're manipulating people, you're treating them like objects, as means to your ends at all times. And his conclusion, very very much like Machiavelli, is everybody does it, and so you just need to be better than the other guy at doing it because what else is there? Alinsky, meanwhile, Saul Alinsky, community organizer, father of community organizing. Bernays, for his part, uh, the father of public relations as a profession. But Saul Alinsky is the father of community organizing. He writes rules for radicals, and literally dedicates the book to Satan, who he calls the first radical. Alinsky writes that community organizing is predicated on going into minority communities and either drawing attention to an issue or else creating the issue whole cloth. And once you have raised awareness one way or the other concerning the situation, then you polarize the issue, you freeze it, where it stays polarized, and then you offer to take leadership of one or the other of the sides, typically the side that agrees with you that this is an issue. I'll represent your concerns to the leaders of the community, and then what you do once you are representing their concerns is, while you're at it, you've got this kind of uh, momentum, this wind in your sails in terms of their appointing you to be their representative you also champion your causes, your larger political aims. Once they've empowered you, you do what you want to do, what you have a mind to do. You use them, essentially. Talk them into voting for you or appointing you, or commissioning you, and then use their support to get what you want done. Now, <clears throat> all of this is very unpleasant, right? And so I think there's a tendency as we look at it as we look at these three authors, to not, right? <laughs> you know, it, It's kind of like what I said recently as I was sharing about these two Frigidaire freezers that we purchased almost two years ago, but not quite. And uh, they both failed and spoiled a lot of good food. You know, if you're thinking about buying a Frigidaire freezer, you know, here's some advice. Don't. Uh, $2,000 worth of freezers, and they should have lasted a lot longer than two years, much longer. But I think in a similar vein, we can look at the prospect of reading or else even hearing about Nicola Machiavelli or Edward Bernays or Saul Alinsky, uh, either reading them directly or hearing someone else summarize their work, and unconsciously we have an aversion because it's unpleasant, Uh, because it's uh, discomforting. It's very discomforting. And admittedly, if you're feeling uncomfortable with the idea that there are very influential, prominent advocates for manipulating the masses and lying and deceiving who proudly give their advice or have given their advice in decades and centuries past, and they've been taken up on their advice. This is how you get power. This is how you keep power. You know, if you're feeling uncomfortable about that, I, you know, I, I am too, right? I also feel uncomfortable. It is an uncomfortable realization. So what you might want to do as I'm talking about all this in light of Kahneman and Thirsky, uh, you what you might want to do is you might want to just say, oh, I don't want to hear about this, right? Don't trouble me. Don't upset me with this talk. But I would just really strongly encourage you, for one, again, to the end of self-control and uh, protecting yourself, protecting your loved ones. Uh, for two, you know, thinking rightly about how you make decisions, being intentional about it, resting on the grace of God, you know, however clever the worst sorts of predators may be, God is infinitely more clever. However malicious they might be, God is able to save us, and we should put our trust in him. But also, too, get into God's word, and let that be your standard. Let that be your rubric for knowing what is true. When somebody says something that's not true, you have to be able to get in God's word and test the claim that is made. It's too high stakes to just take somebody else's word for it. It's too high stakes. Uh, For one, they might not be trying to mislead you, but their emotions may be clouding their judgment or their own pursuit of pleasure might be clouding their judgment. Peter talks about this in the New Testament with regards to false teachers that their god is their belly. They're like brute beasts and they flaunt their sin. They celebrate it and they boast arrogantly, but their end is destruction. You know, they may be just let around as as uh, much dupes and more so than those they are thinking to deceive. Psalms and Proverbs talks about this as well. Those who set traps and set ambushes for innocent people end up falling into the traps themselves. But towards the end of being wise, towards the end of being godly, serving God in a productive way, having a life in pursuit of what pleases God, having a life that is genuinely serving our immediate family and household, our extended family, our friends, our church family, our community, our co-workers, what have you, we do well to not only know truth, but also to guard ourselves against untruth, to not just know truth, but also to guard ourselves against falsehoods, whether they're purposefully put in our path or we just would accidentally fall into them and be self-deceived. You know, this idea that we would acquire bad habits because there's a, an earnest uh, desire and appetite in us for a certain thing, maybe even a necessity. And then we start associating certain behaviors with receiving those rewards. You know, the, the realization of that should sober us when you look at Skinner, BF uh, B. Skinner's operant conditioning theories, experiments with animals and people, which were conducted to see if you could trigger certain unconscious behaviors by associating rewards with those behaviors, like for instance, ringing a bell, giving a dog a treat, ringing a bell, giving a dog a treat, repeating that over and over and over again to where... The dog is not intentionally salivating when it hears the bell ring, but it just automatically does it. You know, this is very much the topic of atomic habits as well, which I also just read over the weekend. Not to brag, just stating, I think, a relevant fact that I read both of these books back to back with a purpose, with an intentionality. To understand how my own mind works, how the minds of the people that I know uh, work. I read Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones by James Clear. And this is of a piece. These two books are very much of a piece with one another where our own ability to control ourselves is concerned. You have some compulsive desire to do a thing that is not good for you to do, some addiction, some tendency that hurts you, that hurts the people around you, that grieves the heart of Almighty God. Well, how did it happen that that became a compulsion, that that became a habit, that that became an addiction, that that became something that, try as you might, to stop you have a really hard time? You get in this situation, in this circumstance, with these conditions, and before you know it, you're right back at it. Well, it helps. It helps to figure out what are those cues, what are the equivalent cues in your environment that serve to act like B.F. Skinner's bell to the dogs? Even when you stop giving them a treat, they still salivate when they hear the bell because they've so closely associated it with the treat. It really, really is important that we take these two things together toward the end of self-control. Now, this episode, we're talking more specifically about The Undoing Project. I would recommend it. It's a very interesting read. But next episode, I'm hoping we're going to do a book review. I'm planning on, I'm intending to do a book review of Atomic Habits. This episode, I want to talk more specifically about how we can Protect ourselves, you know, kind of like Inception, uh, great film, one of my favorite films. But Christopher Nolan directs uh Leonardo DiCaprio is the primary star, some really, really great other actors also in the supporting cast. But you know, that's the whole premise of the movie is that you are entering into people's dreams and implanting ideas that their brains believe are their own ideas, but you are implanting the idea. You're suggesting it to them while they sleep, while their defenses are down. And just like in the movie, you have people who can be hired to help buff up your psychological defenses to where somebody tries to hijack your subconscious and implant their own ideas, their own agenda in your mind. It would be bad for you. It would be contrary to your interests or to what is right or what is true or what is sensible. Your defenses go up and you are able to be protected. Well, I really believe that is a generalized picture, not true and relevant in all its particulars, but a generalized picture of what we're called to in the scriptures with regards to the world, the flesh, and the devil the world that does not know God, which is in rebellion against God, is going to try and push in a million ways, a million billion ways, its rebellion against Almighty God on us. Our flesh, our own sinful nature, more to the point, is going to try and draw us away because we still have that old man to contend with until Christ returns or calls us home. And that old man is going to try and pull us away to death and to sin and to rebellion against God. And then of course, too, we have the enemy of our soul be sober and vigilant for, you know, that your adversary, the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that idea of Satan devouring you don't take that. So literally what that really has to do with is your heart and your mind and your soul, your affections and your thoughts And your worship, do you worship the Most High God? Do you put him at the center of your universe, your conception of the universe, your worldview, how you think of life and the people around you, how you relate to such. So in closing, because my goal is here lately to try and trim my episodes back, trying to be more self-controlled, more disciplined, more intentional, because I know that suddenly, but surely, when an episode is closer to 45 minutes, your brain is going to round down the episode length to 45 minutes and you're going to say, oh yeah, I've got 45 minutes. I could check that out. And if I get it up into the 50 minutes, 50 to an hour, you round up to an hour and then even 30 seconds could make the difference between whether you listen or not. So we're going to try and keep this to the 45 minute Uh, neighborhood. But before we run out of time, I want to read for you Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep. In the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword So we see here, and here's my point. We see here Jesus telling his disciples, his 12, first and foremost, don't go to the Gentiles. Stay to the house of Israel. For now, this changes in the book of Acts and on through the New Testament. We see the gospel going out to Gentiles. But for right now, confine yourself to the household of Israel. But then what does he say in verse 16? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Right there. Right there. That is why I read Machiavelli's The Prince and Bernays' Propaganda and Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Not that I want to make a steady diet of those books, but because I want to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I would encourage you as well, don't think you can only do one or the other. Don't think you can only either be as wise as serpents or innocent as doves. He says to do both. By God's grace, by the power of his spirit and his word, we can do both. May we have wisdom as we try to do both and grace. I would say, check out this one. Check out this book. Towards that end, The Undoing Project. It's a very interesting read. Be careful. Test everything with the scriptures. But towards the end of understanding, towards the end of being wise, it's an interesting read. And well written. That's all the time I've got. I gotta leave it there. As always, thank you for listening.